0: Hello legends, before we get into the episode I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released, it's called Crime at Bedtime and as the name suggests it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away so go check it out, it's called Crime at Bedtime, it's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Hello and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. And today is another Q&A episode. In fact, I think it's our third Q&A episode. If you are part of our Facebook group, you would have seen a few weeks ago, I posted a video saying that we're going to do one of these and asking you for your questions. Uh, so if you're not part of our Facebook group, hit the link in the description of this episode. Join the Facebook group so that you can ask a question as well. And don't forget, we've also got our OMR hotline, which you can call at any stage and leave a question. It could be a question for me. It could be Michael. Leonard, our attorney, and of course, one of the many men and women that we speak with who are incarcerated across the United States. So uh, up for grabs in this episode, we do have a uh, competition. Uh, Everyone who gets a question on the episode goes into the draw for this week. It is an OMR mug and two kids' books that I illustrated um, they were written by Australian uh, TV and radio funny man Ed Keverley and I drew the pretty pictures for them. Uh, so it's uh, two books and a mug. Anyway, less of my rabble and more of your questions. Let's do it. Okay, time for another Q&A episode. Big thank you to everyone who's got involved with this on Facebook and calling our hotline number. Uh, there is plenty to get through, so uh, let us waste no time and, and jump into it. Well, let's start with a, a voicemail message. Here we go. Where are you? This one.
3: Hey, Jack. It's Melissa from Melbourne. I love the show. Thank you. My question is, if you were a jury member for one of the cases that you have gone through, do you think that you would have voted to convict the person based Mm. on the information that was provided to the jury, not so much the information that you're able to gather from the person and other people you've spoken to about the case as well? Could be any of the cases that you've looked into, not any particular one, but I'm just interested because of all your thoughts about the jury system in general. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you, Mel. Uh, Great question. Uh, And probably a, a tricky one to answer if I'm honest. Um, because I suppose you don't really know unless you're there in that situation whether or not, which way you'd go. But I think, yes, there's plenty of cases that I listen to where from, from what I've heard that the jury heard about, then I can see why they voted the way they did. Of course, there's plenty of other cases where you go, how did a jury come to this decision? Um, but when you look at the cases, like even Evaristo Salas Jr., I mean, when you realise the amount of information that that jury didn't get given... You can understand why they went guilty. Um, Obviously, knowing what we know now, if that had been brought up, then, of course, completely different story. Ignoring the fact that he was 15, and I don't think I could ever convict someone of spending over 30 years in prison at the age of 15, uh, but that's a completely different kettle of fish in itself. But for the actual crime itself and for what information was given to the jury, I can definitely understand why they went guilty on him. As I said, now we know the information that we know, you know, you've got this snitch who who lied and said that I lied and I was, you know, uh, someone else wrote this for me and I just signed off in it. You know, you're finding out about the, the guy's partner having the trunk cleaned just days after the crime had happened and then selling it. Obviously looking at all that now, you go, well, if that was in jury was that, that was presented to the jury then, you know, and they'd found him guilty. You would go, well, that's crazy. Uh, you'd never find someone guilty if you knew that information, but that's the thing. The information didn't get to the jury. Uh, and as Michael, our attorney has said on many occasions and other people have pointed out, your jury is only as good as the information that they, they're given, which again, which is where I struggle with the jury system. But I suppose you could let them look, okay, say so we don't have a jury system and say it's all handled by judges. Again, your judge is going to be held by the information given. So there's no getting around prosecutorial misconduct where the prosecution are generally just hiding things, you know, information that could find someone not guilty. Now that in itself is just in a whole issue that I just don't even know where you begin. Well, you probably need to start by prosecuting prosecutors and people in power who do those things because at this stage... Um, In fact, uh, Temujin Kenzu, who we've spoken to obviously recently in a case, he told me all about how the fact that these people are protected from prosecution, um, which I think is is wherein lies the issue. If there's no such thing as repercussions for these people, then why not roll the dice and go, well, let's get ourselves a conviction. So the fact that these people can't be prosecuted for prosecutorial misconduct and and hiding information and, and that sort of stuff, that is obviously an incredibly bad, bad thing. But yes, there is plenty of cases um, that I've, I've spoken about where if I was presented the information that those juries were presented, I quite possibly would have said guilty. It's funny. I think before getting, doing this show, I always kind of liked the idea of sitting on a jury. I've been, I've been asked, I've been called up to do jury duty twice. The first time I was very, very young. Uh, and then I actually recently got asked Christmas of this year, I got a letter stating uh, that I've been called for jury duty. And obviously, because of what I do, once they found out that they said, well, we no longer want you. But I just don't think that I'd want to be on a jury. I just think it's just too, too much pressure. You've got someone's life in your hands and, you know, you've got to make the right decision and, yeah it's it comes across to me as like it would be extremely stressful and you're thrown into a room with people you don't know who have also got you know different personalities and different biases and all that sort of stuff. I just think the whole jury system is just th- fraught with issues. obviously I'm never going to get that system uh, changed because I am uh, just a bloke who sits in his kid's toy room producing a podcast. So no one's going to listen to him and and then no one's going to suddenly turn around and say, you know what, this system that we've been using for hundreds of years, this guy don't like it. Let's uh, let's review this system. Um, But yes, so in a long winded answer to your question, uh, yes, there are plenty of cases I reckon I probably would have found someone guilty. Um, again, it's a hard one to answer completely because you don't know unless you're in the situation, hearing the evidence, seeing it all unfold and then being in the deliberation room and all that goes with that as well. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a hard one to answer, but I think I probably would have done. Yeah. Thanks for your question, Mel. Great one. Okay. Question from Facebook. This one is a legal question, so I shan't be handling this one. (laughs) We will bring in uh, our uh, favourite attorney of law, Michael Leonard. Now, Mr Leonard, this question you can uh, handle for us. From Hayden Simpson on Facebook says, uh, how come people in the States spend so long on death row before the sentence is actually carried out? It feels like it's almost two sentences. Uh, Can you sort of elaborate for us on, on that situation?
4: Well, they have uh, certain appeal rights, and typically all those appeal rights are going to be completely exhausted until they are executed. So very, very few defendants just say, yeah, I'm not contesting my death and I'm just going to be done with my case. So the normal procedure would be they're going to appeal it all the way up through the state court system, and then they're going to go through the federal court system and also try any legal maneuver they can Uh, to avoid the imposition of death or try to get a court to relook at their case or to resentence them or to remand it for a new trial. And so that all those processes can take literally years and sometimes decades to exhaust every possible available remedy to the defendant.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's been, I I believe there's been cases where, you know, someone has died of natural causes before they got to the point where they, uh, they were killed by their death sentence.
4: Yeah, that could happen. I mean, You know, it's not typically that the case is going to be in a system for 50 years, but certainly uh, 10 years or more, that'd be regular. Uh, But yeah, I mean, if a defendant uh, just wanted to take his sentence and not appeal and not pursue any legal avenues of relief, obviously the process could go much quicker. But uh, for good or for bad in our system, you have lots of appeal rights and ways to attack your conviction or attempt to attack it. Usually, very unsuccessfully, in both the state courts and the federal courts,
0: and and you do hear a lot about you know on the day of the execution, you know they're waiting for an, a stay of execution. Literally on the day, they're like, "There's there's been cases I've read about where multiple times the the, the person's literally being led to you know the room where it's going to happen, and all of a sudden out of nowhere they get this stay of execution. It's turnaround; they're going back again.
4: That's true because you know you're gonna you're gonna exhaust every remedy, including in in a state court proceeding, going to the governor of the state to try to get him to stay. And of course, as you know, as these cases are developed over a period of years, oftentimes new evidence is developed, right? And so that may the, open the door to get back into court and start the process again, right? And then you're appealing a denial that was based upon newly discovered evidence, or you're trying to appeal to the governor of the state to stay your execution based upon either a legal error or something that's been newly discovered. So it, it is true. The process can take years or decades. That's that is correct.
0: And and is it also probably to do with the fact that you know it's it's been it's well documented that numerous people have been executed who were who were innocent. Um, and obviously, I, I don't think anyone really wants to do that to anyone is to to execute someone who is innocent. So, um, and I've also heard. I think Temujin actually um, told me that you know if you are sentenced to death, you are given access to um, legal, like a pretty strong legal team to help you with fighting your, your um,
4: conviction? Yeah, you're going to have attorneys who um, are well-versed in uh, what's called a capital case, meaning that the penalty can be death. So those attorneys are going to be very specialized, going to have a lot of experience in that area. And they're going to do everything they can to you know pursue what you might be called legal loopholes, anything procedurally or substantively they, they can do. To stave off the execution, and that's what typically the defendant wants. So, I guess you're looking at it from the standpoint of the victim or society when the person's been convicted. But of course, we have had cases where death has been imposed, and it's been turned that it's been turned out that they've been actually fully exonerated, not just not just reversed on some procedural issue, but actually a court has found that they're actually entitled to a certificate of innocence, meaning that. It would have been a very rash decision no matter how long it took to execute someone who turns out to be innocent. Uh, Let's go to a question from Facebook. What do we got here?
0: Matt, the big rig on Facebook. Uh, What have been your most significant failures and what did you learn from them? Also, what do you want to achieve next? What have been your most significant failures and what did you learn from them? Now, I'm not sure whether you mean failures from this show or just in general, so I'll try and do a pricey of everything. So many failures. (laughs) To, you know, although, you know, I know you're supposed to look at them as not failures, but lessons that you learned throughout the years. Uh, a lot of them are the failures, uh, stand-up comedy career, multiple YouTube channels, uh, other podcasts. The list goes on. Now, what I learned from them, though, uh, is storytelling. You know, I, I wrote a uh, six-episode sitcom, which I was I, uh, ended up directing and producing and, and putting out on the internet, which failed. Um, but... I learned from those things, storytelling, which is, you know, I think that's set me up perfectly for what I do now, you know, even doing stand-up comedy that I did um, for for a year. It teaches you how to um, whittle things down and get to the point, basically, because, you know, no one wants to watch a stand-up comedian who just rattles on for hours and never gets to the point or the punchline. So I think that's taught me that. Of course, working in radio, you know, although I had a, a pretty good career, you know, I didn't do everything that I wanted to do. But again, learning from that. It was storytelling. So it's all set me up, um, I think, for creating this show. Um, significant failures with this show. I'd like to think so far we haven't any significant failures. There's still a lot I want to do and achieve. Uh, what do you want to achieve next? That leads into your next question. Uh, obviously, I want this show to ha- have a bigger footprint on the, on the planet, uh, especially in America would be nice. Although I'm worried that the Americans feel like I'm just attacking them all the time. And I'm not... If you're American and you're listening to this, I'm not doing this show to attack you. It's just the way it's happened uh, is that I talk to inmates in America. Uh, We've got an Australian story coming up, so we're not perfect at all. Uh, It's just a lot easier to speak to Americans, which is why we focused on the American system. So I never want anyone to think I'm attacking America. I'm not. It's just the way, you know, the people I talk to. Um, But I think the main thing I want is for people to realize that just because someone's in prison doesn't mean they should be there. Now, and I know a lot of people probably listen to my show and go, oh, this guy just thinks that no one should be in prison. He wants a la di da world. That is not true. I truly believe there are plenty of people that are incarcerated that need to be there. I also believe there's plenty of people that aren't incarcerated that should be incarcerated. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't blanket everybody. We shouldn't just say that, you know, everyone's in there, they deserve to be there, they don't deserve a second chance and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so we've just done the story, for instance, of um, Jamie. And Jamie was a a gang guy, violent guy. He admits it. He was a violent guy, got into fights, um, was doing the wrong thing. Did he deserve to go to prison? Absolutely. But listening to that man now, he has turned his life around. He's educated himself. He is a better person. He's left the gang situation. He is looking forward to getting out of prison. Thankfully, they're letting him out. And that's that's a great thing. You know, he's done 10 years in prison. He's got another five to, to go. So he's done 15 years in prison. And I don't look at that and go, oh, he shouldn't have gone to prison, blah, blah, blah. Yes, he should have gone to prison. He was doing the wrong thing. He was in a gang. He was creating havoc on the outside. You do that, there's got to be repercussions. But what I'm saying is, you know, you see all these situations where people are thrown in with a hundred year sentence. It's like, what is the point in that? What is the point in the prison system, giving someone that sort of sentence where there's no rehabilitation? Now, again, not everyone is going to be able to be rehabilitated. I get that. And everything should be a case-by-case basis. And that's what I'm saying. And that's why when you look at the Florida system where they have no parole, it's like, what's going on? You can't just, just because you've had a couple of bad situations where you've let someone out and they weren't rehabilitated, you can't then just go, well, there's no, we're not doing that anymore. We're just going to can it all. No, no, you need to fix the system so that the people giving the parole have a better understanding of giving parole and, and looking at situations better. Fix that. Don't just can the whole thing. So again, I'm really going off on a tangent here, but I just want to achieve, the thing I want to mostly achieve is to show people that it's not black and white. Um, I also would like the show to be successful enough that we can you know, make enough money that we can put a little pot aside so that I can help certain people. Like David Talley. David Talley needs money to get himself a proper attorney to get back into court. And I would love to just go, here's the cash do what we need to do, get you out. For instance, a man with a 100-year prison sentence who didn't hurt anyone. He had a drug problem. He hasn't since cleaned himself up. He's been in there 22, probably 23 years now, I think, while we record this. Insanity, never to be released again. I mean, what is that all about? It, ridiculous. If I had the money, of course, I would just hand it over and say, let's do whatever we need to do to get this man out. So, you know, and for, for me to be able to do that, I need the show to be bigger, to be able to make more money, to have more sponsors. Um, yeah, Long winded answer to your question there, Matt. And that segues beautifully into the spot in the show where we hear from our valued sponsors and and advertisers. Uh, They're going to tell you about some incredible products. Get involved with that. uh, And then we'll see you on the other side with a question for Temujin Kenzu. Uh, let's take another phone question.
3: <clears throat> Hi, Jack. It's Marianne. Hello, Marianne. I just wanted to ask um, – I'm loving your podcast, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to ask a question um, for Kimberly. Mm. I wanted to a- ask, first of all, how many children has she got? Because when she talks about her ex-husband, um, I'm just trying to work out if they had cho- she had children then. Mm. Or if she only had two children, which she she talks about two children. And also, I just wanted to ask, um, does she think her husband was having an affair or something? Do you think maybe that's why the things happened, how they did? I'm just wondering if that was looked into and is he with anyone now? I know you talked about why, well, Kimberly said that she, he didn't contact her after she was sentenced when she was in jail. I find that quite strange. Thank yes. you. Bye.
0: Thank you, Mary. Great questions. And yes, I find the whole thing very strange as well. Uh, Look, I I would love to get Kim to answer this for us, but just so everyone gets a heads up about Kim, I don't know if I may have mentioned this in another episode, but Kim has now moved to a different facility. She's no longer in the facility she was in. Uh, She says it's a very old facility um, and uh, there's lots of issues around phones and uh, emailing and all the rest of it. We, we are, have been communicating. In fact, I last heard from her last week, I think it was, just an update on how she's doing. Um, she's also had a, a real rough time personally uh, of late. Uh, losing her mother um, uh, has really obviously hit her very hard. She was kind of the last person on the outside that she really had um so she's she's yeah, she's been having a a tough time at the moment, Kim, so her and I haven't spoken on the phone for some time. we are as I said speaking via email, so I, I can't get her to answer this question for you right now, and I can answer a couple of them for you. I can tell you that um she has two two kids, um the other kids that she speaks about in those episodes, I believe uh, they were her husband at the times kids from a different relationship, so they were stepchildren essentially. Um, but she has two of her own kids. Um, she has asked, I don't know if I've also, I'm not sure if I've also mentioned this in another episode, but um, her and I did discuss her children and she did ask me to sort of reach out to them. Um, and I did find them online um, and I don't want to give her obviously information about them or uh, any sort of details about their life or what's going on with them. But um, all I can say on that matter is probably that her husband looks like he has definitely moved on with his life. Um, and that's probably all I will say on that matter. Um, I obviously, during those episodes, I did ask Kim whether she f- thought her husband had something to do with this out of interest because that was seemed to be the angle that her defence attorney was going down during uh, the course of her trial. Um, he seemed to ask questions and make suggestions that would potentially... Um, incriminate her husband or at least suggest that he may have had something to do with it. So I said to her, look, it, it, was that your thought process? Did you think your husband had something to do with this? Was, was there something going on behind the scenes you think uh, that meant that he did turn against you or sort of, uh, I mean, obviously, as we know, he didn't say anything bad about her but he didn't help her either. He was on the stand for the prosecution. So and like everybody else, I, find that, I found that strange that he would just suddenly disappear and then... Turn up on the stand for the prosecution and speak against her, but she has never said anything bad about her former husband to me once—not off air, not on air, not in emails, not at all. Uh, I said to her, "Do you think? Do you think he had something to do with it?" She's and her response to me was simply, um, "I don't believe so. I wouldn't want to think that he did." So. I don't. I don't think. I don't know. I mean, that's that's as far as we've got with that one, really. Um, and as I said, I, it's not something I can keep prying. I think with Kim about because, again, she's she's had a real rough time of late. At, at this point, she was probably of the opinion that it, it, what 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 difference would that make? Um, so yeah, tough one there. It's a it's a it's a very bizarre story, very bizarre case that one. Um, but yes, yeah, so, sorry, I can't be more definitive on that one for you. Uh, obviously, as I said. Definitely has only got the two the two kids. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very bizarre case, that one. Thank you for your call, though, and your question. Uh, question here from Casey. Now, Casey was our corrections officer. You would have heard in a recent uh, Thursday episode. He's saying here, here's a question. Do you think it's a lack of caring or compassion or just simply greed that some of these cases don't get investigated the way they should? I mean, million-dollar question, Casey. Who knows? I mean, I, I don't think we can blanket any of these situations with one specific reason why they wouldn't get properly investigated, I think there's probably a whole, whole raft of reasons why they don't get properly investigated. You know, it's a case of we need to get this solved. Again, I always talk about this. You hear about there was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to get a conviction on this one, a, pr- a lot of pressure to close this case. And I think that clouds judgment when it comes to investigations because, you know, there's people that are under pressure like anyone else in any any job you're in, there's always a certain amount of pressure. The only issue is in these jobs, those there's people's lives at stake. You know, I think you look at Temujin Kenzu's case. There's a young man who was shot and killed, and he was the son of a mayor. A lot of pressure to get a result on that case because you've got a mayor of a city going, Guys, my son has been murdered. We need to find out who did this and we need to find out now. So they're like, Right, quick, guys, we've got to get this sorted. There's a lot of pressure to get this one done. So that is a big issue. I, and again, but I don't think we should also tarnish the legal system, you know, when it comes to detectives and police, because I think the police do a fantastic job. My brother was a police officer for over 10, 12 years, and he was a fantastic copper, you know, always did the right thing. Didn't just randomly go out and and give people tickets for no reason and that sort of stuff. So there is so many people, there's plenty of detectives and police officers who do a brilliant job and they want to find the person who did it, not just arrest people or lock someone up. I don't know if greed comes into it, I think, um, you know, we've done interviews in the past where experts have told us that some police can have a bit of a blinkered blanket view of their own abilities when it comes to picking someone. And I think less sort of compassionate caring and it's more about ego a lot of the time as well. And, and I think that's what happens when you get these wrongful convictions. It's ego. Sometimes it doesn't allow people to say, hey, I, I got this wrong or we got this wrong. Training would be another thing. You know, simply offices in country towns not being trained properly in how to handle a crime scene, for instance. You know, I've read about so many cases and spoken to so many people on different cases where simple things that you think would be done are just not done, like securing a crime scene, stopping people walking through a crime scene, following up on leads questioning people. And that would probably come down to as well in these small towns, resources. They don't have the resources to do full investigations, to speak to everyone they probably should be speaking to. So it's a whole, whole raft of reasons. And again, something that we're not going to solve on my little podcast, but (laughs) thank you for your question, Casey. Okay, let's go to uh, another phone question. Hey
3: Jack, Jasmine here. Love the show. Um, My question is, why does Temujin change his name so many times? I've had so many names been thrown around that he has been called. I'd love to know. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Bye. Great question uh, and one that quite a few people actually had for Temujin. So, uh, of course, I got him on the phone. We had, uh, we've been chatting for quite a while, so you'll hear we get cut off very quickly here. Uh, but uh, he answers the question for us on why all the name changes and where Temujin Kenzu came from.
5: Yeah, so Mickey was my nickname. My grandmother used to call me a little Mick, which is an old uh, nickname for an Irish person. And um, you know, you were a tomboy. Uh, you were you were part of the, what they called the motley crew when I was young. Just before the rock band, the phrase motley crew just meant a bunch of ragamuffin kids that ran around together. My grandmother would say, "Oh, you're a little Mick," and so I was Mickey for a long time. And my birth name is Frederick, uh, named by my father who passed when I was seven, when I uh, got my degree in Buddhism, and I took my what's called initiation, which is where you take your Buddhist vows, you're given a religious name, uh, much like Muslims and other faiths do, you receive a religious name. Yeah. And so I received the religious name Temujin from my teacher, which is known as a Roshi. Uh, I was practicing Zen Buddhism at that time, so we have Roshis. Uh, Sifu is a general term for teacher also, and uh, or sensei or shidoshi. And but my roshi gave me the name Temujin, and Temujin means uh, basically means blacksmith. It's a derivative of a uh, Southern Mongolian word. Kensu is a family lineage. So if you're in a certain order, you receive the name of that lineage. And Kensu was the lineage that I was training with. And so you receive a first name and a second name. So that's where I got my religious name.
0: Yeah. Wow. So so why it's interesting. Actually, you're the third person that I spoke to who's incarcerated. Who's actually um, two of the two of the other gentlemen I speak with who did some research into Buddhism and, and learned that they actually they to completely changed their lives. They left the gangs in prison and, and completely turned their lives around. In fact, the, yeah. the, the gentleman I just spoke about, the one who's been in, um, just exonerated, he, but he was in a gang in prison because he went in at 16 and needed to survive. Um, but he was put in the hole and started reading, and he was reading about Buddhism, and he said it changed his life. So why for for you did Buddhism do
5: that? Well, actually, I was studying Eastern faith when I was free. I I had trained in Taoism when I was in Washington State, among other things. And when I came into prison, it was an insanely violent, loud atmosphere. This is the old days where you have bars at the back and the front of your cell, 450 people crammed into a giant five-story building, all open, and um, meditation was probably one of the things that kept me from going crazy. Yeah. So I would put in earplugs, and I would just climb up on my bunk, and I would meditate for hours. And also, we didn't have cable television in those days. We didn't have video games or things like that. So we really just had books. And we got three TV channels. In the daytime, it was soap operas and the news. So You have
3: one minute remaining.
5: Oh, I'm sorry. That went by way too quick. <laughs> and so I would spend hours reading and studying.
0: So there you have it. That is uh, all the information behind his name changes and, of course, the uh, the name Temujin Kenzu. Now, as I said, we had been talking for quite a while. I'm going to be doing an updated episode with Temujin very soon because there's other questions for him as well uh, that he wants to a- uh, answer for you. Um, so we're going to have a full catch-up, see how he's going, uh, any news, etc. cetera, uh, very soon. So uh, listen out for that one. A question here from Leah. I appreciate the way that you're there to let the inmate tell their story uh, and that you remain open-minded and unbiased during the interviews. But behind the scenes, has there been cases where you do actually think they're guilty? yes 100% there has been people i've spoken to that i believe are a absolutely guilty you know and i've said in the past that just because i'm not i don't become accusatory towards these people doesn't mean i believe every single word i'm told i mean i've had even someone give leave a review to state that the host has absolutely no reasoning skills or thought processes of his own because these people are, are obviously guilty <laughs> so but i always stated from the very start that i'm not here to interrogate anybody. I'm not here to call anyone out and say, I think you're lying. I think you're talking rubbish. There's plenty of those shows. There's plenty of the, you know, 60 minutes and, and whatnot where they attack the people they're talking to and, you know, call them out for being liars. But I don't think there would be very many men and women who are incarcerated that'd be too happy to to talk to me if I started doing that. Um, you know, I made it, as I said, I made a decision from the very start. This is about men and women who are incarcerated telling their stories about how they say things happened. It is up to the people listening, you, to decide whether you believe them or not. And of course I have my own thought process and my own feelings to these different stories that I hear, but it's not my job to to give my opinion in my opinion. <laughs> uh, so yes, that's why I stay on the fence and try and stay as unbiased as I possibly can. Obviously when there's stories that come out where it's just absolutely disgraceful and there's obvious miscarriage of justice, then I, well, I can't help myself but to speak up. And some people might say, well, then why don't you do that when it's obvious that they're lying? The reason that I don't do that is because of the fact that the people I'm talking to are in prison. If they are guilty and we believe it's obvious that they're guilty, they're already in prison. Being on my podcast is not going to get them out of that situation. So they're already paying the price for whatever they did or don't believe they did. That's why there's no point attacking them. Well, what's the point of me going, you're a liar? Yeah, you deserve to be where you are. What's the point. But I think the authorities, like the police and the judges and the um, prosecutors and the legal system, has a far greater responsibility to get things right because they hold all the power. So if I think someone's locked up in a prison, they've had their freedom taken away from them, and it's insanity, then yes, I'm going to speak up. Uh, it's not because I'm a lefty. I think I've had someone accuse me of that as well, being, oh, God, this is so, he's such a lefty. I'm not. I'm not left or right. I sit in the middle. I'm the most boring human being in the world. I have opinions that would be classified as right, and I have opinions that would be classified as left. Um, uh, Have you interviewed someone, but their story hasn't made the cut to your podcast due to this reason? Uh, Yes, there has been. Uh, There's been interviews and and stuff that I have done that um, we have decided that um, are probably just not the right, right fit for the show. Okay, another Facebook question from Mandy Carvin. Uh, Thanks for your question, Mandy. I haven't heard Michael's take on Temujin's case yet, so disregard if answered, please. But is Temujin's case one Michael is willing to take on? Surely it would be a great case to be on the right side of. Uh, I'm sure Michael would happily get involved with this case, Mandy, but um, there's no real need for him to get involved. Um, Temujin has uh, legal, uh, legal team involved. Um, we had in fact his lawyer on an episode, uh, not that long ago. He's got the Michigan Innocence Clinic, um, in on his team basically, and the Innocence Project as well, I believe are also involved in his case. So Temujin is unlike probably anyone we speak to. He has got more help, uh, than anyone I think we speak to. Um, and strained, and he's still stuck in prison. So that just shows how infuriating the system can be. You can imagine for Temujin and his partner Paula um, and their and their legal team and everyone else who's supporting them and him. He's got all this help and he still cannot get out of prison. Um, so, yeah, so in, a, so in answer to your question, I'm sure Michael would be happy to, to help, but Temujin has so much help and he's still in the situation he's in. So... Um, so, yeah, I think uh, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, question from Angela Coffin. What made you want to get into doing a podcast and where did the inspiration from OMR come from? Uh, now, I have answered this one a few times, but I will give you a very quick pricey. Uh, If anyone who hasn't heard how this all started, but I spent 14 years in the radio industry uh, in Australia. I had an idea I wanted to do a podcast of some form. I started investigating something called the lottery curse, where people who win large amounts of money end up having terrible things happen to them. Uh, So I was investigating that. And that's how I came across the story of Doris Moore, because of course, Abraham Lee Shakespeare won the lottery and then he ended up being killed. Um, So that was going to be just one story as part of this lottery podcast and the curse thing and, blah, blah, blah. But obviously I started talking to Doris and then she introduced me to Kim and then Amelia Carr. And I was just like, forget the, the lottery podcast because that was just a nightmare to try and get together. I spent like four years working on that uh, and just dumped the whole thing. <laughs> uh, and so OMR was born. Um, so yeah, that's the very quick pricey of how it all started and all the rest of it. I think if you go to our first and I may have answered it in a much more long winded manner. So you can have a listen to that. But thank you for your question, Angela. So there we have it. Those are our questions. Uh, I want to thank everyone who sent us in a question. Uh, There was a couple that I didn't get to just because we've already blown out in this one. I know Donna, you asked a question about the Alaskan Avenger. I want to get Jason on if I can uh, to talk about it. It'd be great to just catch up with him anyway. Um, So I will will try and get hold of him. It is harder to get hold of Jason because I have to go through his sister and it's a, a bit of a back and forth situation, but I'm going to try and get hold of Jason soon so we can have a, just a catch up with him, see how he's going, and I'll ask him your question about his parole situation and all the rest of it. Uh, so thank you so much indeed for everyone who sent in a question. All that's left now to do is to choose a winner. Uh, for those of you who are not part of our Facebook group, when I put a video saying we're doing a Q&A, I also put out uh, our competition. So basically what's up for grabs is an OMR coffee mug and also two kids books that I illustrated. Uh, they are kids' books that were written by uh, TV and radio's funny man Ed Cavalli. Um One of those books is not even in stores yet. Not sure if I'm allowed to give it away even, <laughs> but I'm doing it. Okay, so everyone who... Um uh, who had a question that got into the episode, is going to the draw. Now, we did have a couple of double-ups on the Temujin changing his name multiple-time question. A lot of people were interested about that one, so I've still put your names into the draw, Michelle O'Connor, Rebecca Nowski, and Melissa Mitchell. Uh, you are in the draw as well. You, that noise you can hear is everyone's names on pieces of paper, uh, and we are – it's in a giant novelty mug. Uh, I'm not going to pick the winner. As is now tradition, I will get the uh, – competition prize uh, winner picker in here to do that, that is my wife Becky can I borrow you? it's tradition that you pick the winner of the competition for the Q&A don't want to break tradition alright, there we go we have the winner and the winner is Michelle O'Connor Michelle O'Connor congratulations Michelle, you are the winner of the mug and the books gotta post that to the United States (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so there we have it Another Q&A, thank you again for everyone who sent in uh, Your questions and all the rest of it We'll do another one probably, I don't know, at some point Very soon, Uh, until next time Talk to you soon, thanks for the support as always I love you all, in a weird way One minute remaining is a mash Pumpkin production Produced, hosted and created By Jack Lawrence Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence And Dom Evans This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network.